We need to have a very prophetic understanding of the purpose of the church. Rather than feel that we're the victims, the church needs to begin to see the prophetic destiny and begin to know that you're victors and you're called to get a hold of that scripture that says, thanks be to God, that always causes us to triumph. These scriptures can't just be mental scriptures. They need to be things we own in our spirit and in our hearts. And we speak it, we act it, we walk it until we see it. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony and it's brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. That's Premier Christianity magazine. For a free sample copy, head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Type your address in and we will send you a free copy of the latest issue. But today, right here on the profile, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking to Nims Abunge. Nims is an independent candidate for the 2020 London mayoral election coming up on May 7th. He's also the senior pastor of Freedom's Ark Church and CEO of the Peace Alliance. The Peace Alliance was founded in 2001 as a local initiative in Haringey to tackle knife crime. Today, the Peace Alliance works nationally with the Home Office and the Metropolitan Police advising on key policy issues. The Peace Alliance has received endorsements from key politicians and former Prime Ministers, including Tony Blair and Theresa May. Having previously resisted going into politics, Nims has now announced his candidacy for London Mayor. Nims, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Sam. So tell me, what was it that has pushed you into politics? After some reluctance, you are now standing to be London Mayor. Why is that? I think the same reason I started the Peace Alliance is the same reason I find the need to go into politics. And it's really about people's lives and the issue about how our society has been affected by the violence on our streets, the issues of socioeconomic deprivation, poverty of aspiration, opportunities, and how I feel that having always made requests of politicians to do politics a bit differently and to be a bit more engineered in trying to produce change in the areas, I feel change needs to happen. Um, you just see that not happening. I I had meetings with Sadi Khan, the present mayor, and when I challenged him, having buried a young girl called Tanisha, um, as to why, you know, how we can work together. And there were several other Christian leaders there. And he pretty much didn't have an answer, but wrote me a message to say, you know, that next time I should kind of talk with his staff. And I'm thinking what we need right now is somebody who genuinely rolls up their sleeves, gets in with the issues that impact the society, impact wider communities, and just bring a bridge rather than a wall. So you felt like Sadiq Khan wasn't um, making enough progress on that issue, and so you're now challenging him, and you would rather be London Mayor than him? Without a doubt. And in one sense, I think the moment of partisan politics has, we need to kind of skew that away. Um, here, instead of, I think the bricks that build walls, let's use those bricks to build bridges. So London is a very interesting city. Um, you have, you know, whilst when we talk about the Conservatives, Labour, Lib Dem and Green Party and other parties, I think that there was a moment in time an independent candidate can come into the space and unite all these various um, viewpoints because we really want something that's going to work for us. In a post-Brexit world, I really believe that London needs something different. And I also believe that in order to address some of the 
vices and the challenges we have in London, we can do it much better together rather than, you know, I will work with Labour, I will work with Lib Dems, I will work with the Conservatives, I'll work with the Greens, I'll work with everybody who wants to bring in the support structures. So it's about us, it's not about NIMS running from air, it's really about a movement that I want to see generated from our communities where everybody's saying we need something different and then because we need something different. We've got this, um, ac- uh, well, I suppose, this tagline within our campaign, which is step up for London. And we're saying to everybody, let's all step up together mm-hmm. and let's look at what each person brings to create solutions. We'll talk loads more about your different policies and what you're hoping to achieve um, a little bit later on. But first, here on the show, we always like to go back to a person's early life Uh-oh. and hear what was life like growing up. So tell me, where were you and what was your family background like? Well, that's an interesting one. So. I was born here in London. I was born in St. Mary Abbott's Hospital that no longer exists. Um, at the time, I was said to be one of the fattest babies in the hospital, but we'll pass on that. <laughs> and um, I think maybe that's why the hospital shut down. You know, but, but anyhow. So yeah, I was at St. Mary Abbott's Hospital um, and I was Christian at St. Mary Abbott's Church on Kensington, which is still there. I went there to just kind of, you know, moments of nostalgia, just remembering some of my childhood. My father was a Nigerian diplomat. Um, and so we traveled around the world. Um, we traveled to Sweden, and so I schooled in Sweden, I schooled in Rome, I, I, I schooled in Ireland, in Dublin. I was in the music school in County Armagh because I used to sing for the church, the Anglican church, and um, because that St. Paul's within the walls in Dublin. And we, went, we were sent to County Armagh to learn to sing, and then eventually I, I also schooled here in England. I was in Brighton College. Um, went back to Nigeria, school there too. Wow. And um, also, yeah, I did my university, then came back here. Um, uh, in my family, we're nine children, right? So, um, Big so family. yeah, absolutely. And I'm the ninth out of nine. Wow. Um, my mom, my mom, my mom already, you know, they had four boys and four girls. So, and my mom was kind of studying to be a teacher. Somehow she had to give it up because she got pregnant. So in one sense, you kind of get to that moment where you think, well, hold on a second, you were studying, you already had eight kids. <laughs> Wasn't that enough? But I think there was destiny on the inside, holding on and saying, I'm not going to let go until I get born. <laughs> and so she had to, yeah, I, I, I came out the ninth and the last. And yeah, we, we have an amazing family um, spread across the world in America, here and Nigeria. My reason for coming back to England was my brother. My brother had cancer. It started with a toothache, went to the doctors. He was schooling at London School of Economics, doing law. And the doctor said, this is not normal. And uh, the more they checked it out, they found out it was a cancer, bone cancer that basically became a hard and congress mass at the side of his face. And he, he had no bridge on his nose. Eventually, my parents, when they came to see him, couldn't recognize him. The only way they knew it was their son was his voice. Um, and, and the doctors, who were the best the UK had basically said my brother was going to die and they gave him a matter of months they they put him on um, uh, morphine and just palliative care somehow there was a guy called Pastor Debye from the Redeemed Christian Church of God um, and he came to our house prayed for my brother and when he prayed for my brother that was a moment where for the first time having left the hospital my brother was able to sleep through the night without any pain then he decided he needed to go back to Nigeria because there was no hope here. As far as England was concerned, he was, he was just waiting to die. And he went back to the redeemed Christian Church of God in their camp. And they prayed for him constantly, every three hours except for 3 a.m. 
a hole appeared on his face, no medical interventions. Paul started pouring out. He could stick his tongue out through the side of his cheeks. And um, eventually they, I'm fast tracking this, but they, they x-rayed him and the cancer that had taken all his bloodstream to thirds of his lungs and all that, they couldn't find anywhere in his body. Um, so we send the results back here to the teaching hospital. They called for him to come back immediately. And he came back and what happened was they actually said that this was strictly a miracle from God because there was no way, they, this is what the doctor said. He said what no man could do, somehow God seems to have done or some divine interventions happened. And now what you have, we're able to do. So they did a bone, you know, plastic surgery, reconstruction of his jaw. So I came back after my university to just support him. And now he's a leader in my church and he's right. married with two kids. How old were you when all this was going on? I was in my 20s, just after university. And um, I came in and came into um, a church called Victory Church where I also went to Bible college. Um, and whilst in Bible college, I, 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 it was an opportunity to learn about God mm. more. Yeah. And I noticed before you even got to Bible college, you studied politics and international relations. So what yeah. was the fact that you were moving around so much in this family, traveling? You've been schooled in more countries than I've been to, I think. <laughs> um, you've, you've been schooled all over the world. Did that kind of give you an interest in, in, in the international world and in politics, do you think? Without a doubt. My, my, my father was my mentor, um, my hero. In fact, my father and my mom, amazing folks. My mom's still around. She's going to be 95 in May. Um, but my dad's passed on. And um, I was raised in a family where at 6 o'clock prayer meeting and 9 o'clock prayer meeting, that was the way we were raised. You know, it was not like the Von Trump family. You know, and you have bells that ring and, you know, it's prayer time or you're being called by a bell. And traveling around the world with my dad, I got to meet amazing people. I met Pope John Paul too. And, and, you know, I you, you get to meet folks that are just really amazing and I wanted to experience that life so I I wanted to be a diplomat I wanted actually to be an ambassador now I'm an ambassador for Christ so that's cool but but you know I really wanted to actually serve as an ambassador somebody that could express the you know policies and politics of his nation representing that nation globally so that's why I did um, politics and international relations yeah. What um, moved you on from that into Bible college? Because it's interesting looking back at your early life, you think we well, study politics at a very young age. And yet, of course, you've gone into politics in terms of running to be a, be a politician much later in life. So you've kind of politics was clearly an interest, but you felt called, I guess, by God to go the Bible college route and to become a pastor. Absolutely. I, th I, th I think that um, what, what, what was interesting was sat in church. I... I now I'm, th I'm now thinking, okay, I've done politics, and now I'm going to do something else. At that moment, there was a season accountancy was kind of the thing, so I thought, right, what I'll do is I'll, I'll also whilst I'm looking after my brother and supporting him, I'll do accountancy, and I bought all the books, and I was going to start on a Monday, and I'm sat in church, and there's a guy called Michael Bassett who was my pastor, and he's teaching, and he's telling us to turn to a scripture. And in those days, you didn't have digital phones. Mm -hmm and digital Bibles. So I was flipping to the scripture, and I was flipping, and then I came across that simple scripture that said a man had a land, and wanted to buy a land where there was a precious pearl, and he sold everything in order to buy that land. And right there, God said to me, are you ready to give up everything for me? It was one of those moments you just can't capture any, you know, just, it was a, you know, eureka moment. And I just said, God, okay, I'm going to do this. And I gave up the whole vision of accountancy, gave up the whole vision of pursuing 
a diplomatic career and walked up to the pastor at the end of service and said, how can I get into Bible college? Hmm. You know, that was just that moment. Yeah. I, I just knew I had to obey God. And I was ready to take that risk and give up everything. So now, I suppose, full circle round, because of what we've done, I'm really passionate about communities, really passionate about doing things, supporting people who are vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and I suppose over the years, I've, with the Peace Alliance, done things, I've chaired the London Criminal Justice Board Advisory Group. I've overseen criminal justice across all of London. I've, you know, looked at Met Police Stop and Search. I've sat on the scrutiny panel for that. Sat on Home Office Affairs groups. And so over the last 20 years, I've actively been involved in the politics of the city and maybe nationally yeah. without actually being in politics. How have you found the time to do all of that whilst pastoring a church? The grace of God. Now, I, I say that intentionally because I was in the U.S. once and I kind of looked at all the things I was doing and I just was, I, I was like, God, how am I going to do, how am I doing this? I, I was also, at that time, I was also in charge of the Black Leadership Empowerment Network for the Olympics and I was one of the guys, so I was working to make sure that the Olympics worked for the BME communities across the city and there were just many other things going on and God just spoke to me and said, don't number Israel. And that was David's weakness in scripture when he began to look at the strength of the nation, when they say number the army. And God was basically saying to me, don't number Israel. Don't get caught up with all the things you're doing. My grace is sufficient for you. The minute you start thinking it's you, that's the minute you're going to start failing. So I think that's why I'm able to say it was strictly the grace of God. Um, the many things I've not said I've done or I, I do, um, one of it being the Deputy Lieutenant to Her Majesty the Queen and, and, and the Lord Lieutenant and many other things. You know, I've been doing that for over 11 years. You just get into that space and you just see God saying, I'm going to grace you with wisdom to do the things I call you to and do. When, if you were to become London Mayor, would you carry on being a pastor of a church? Will I continue to have a passion for God 100%? I already have a past. Well, we have a pastoral team, a leadership team. So even right now, um, yes, that was in church. Um, and I didn't preach, but at the end of the service, I said something. So will that? what would I be doing as mayor of London? I'll tell you what I'll be busy doing. I'll be pastoring the city. And that means I'll be going from north, south, east, and west, capturing the heartbeat of the people. I won't just stay in a local church because I can't afford to just stay there. Sunday after Sunday, different weekdays. I'll, yes, that was in the synagogue. So I'll be pastoring the city. What's your message to those who are concerned or worried about religion and politics mixing and would say, I'm not sure if I'm comfortable voting for someone who is a pastor and who's a religious leader who also wants to be a politician. Shouldn't religion and politics be kept separate? I think um, we might as well look in the scripture and just say that Daniel had no business to be sat with Nebuchadnezzar. Joseph had no business to be sat with Pharaoh. You know, I, I mean, what the essence is, it's not about being a pastor because I'm not pastoring a church right now. I've got a lead pastor. The fact that a pastor, pastor, the word pastor comes from the word shepherd. And it, it, it's, it's basically, it comes from the meaning of someone who cares and looks after the people in people that have varying needs. Now, our city needs a heart. One of the biggest things I think London needs is a heart that cares, a leader that cares genuinely about the people and does not use political rhetoric in order to try to win votes. Winston Churchill made a statement. He said politicians think about the next election. Statesmen think about the next generation. So my vision is to be a statesman for our city and, and a statesman for our nation where we're thinking about next generational thinking, not how I can make sure I win. I'm not. This is not driven by 
by e- um, an ego system that says, you know, I just want to be the mayor of the city. Really what this is driven by is a passion to see change where we're able to build the aspirations of our, our city and our nation. And if that helps, you know, the fact that I've been a pastor, I could also say, look, I've been a financial advisor. I've, I, 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 I could speak about so many other things I have done in life. I've been a teacher, you know, but all these various vocations I've had in life should not stop me from being the mayor of London. What I want to bring to the table is the values that my faith brings. And I, I work with Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Jews, because I used to run the multi-faith forum for London. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity. Take me back to 2001 when you founded the Peace Alliance. Tell me what the Peace Alliance is and how it came about and what your involvement was in starting it. Okay, so what happened was, and you know, I, I often speak about the story of a young lad called Tyron Rowe. Um, the, the police bar commander in the bar of Haringey came up to me and said, look, Nims, I need your help. I need to support this family because this young boy has been shot and he's in a coma and he needs, he needs help and the family needs help. So I was with the family and unfortunately he passed on. And then there was another young lady and her name was Pauline Peart. And she also got killed sitting in her Audi. And then there was another, and then there was another. And I felt I couldn't sit back and just wait for um, the church to get them in to change the narrative. But we needed to be a church without walls. I mean, it had to be people that desperately cared for the issues. So we, um, in partnership with the police, decided to organize a conference um, in Cockfosters, at which we had, and then, then they didn't have the mayor's office, but we had the head of government office for London, Ellie Roy. So she came, and then we had David Lammy, who was the MP at the time, and David Warwick, the chief executive. Then we had people from different sectors of society. We had a, maybe about 120 to 130 people from different strands, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, you know, faith organizations, voluntary organizations, corporate sector. We all got together. And we said, listen, you know, it's not enough to say it's one agency's responsibility to keep safety happening. We've got to work together. So the Peace Alliance was birthed in that space. We all signed a peace pledge and they were going to call it the anti-violence um, alliance. And I said, no, 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 no. That's, it's not an anti. We need to be more positive and affirmative of it. So I called it the Peace Alliance and I was commissioned to just run off with it and and lead the alliance of people working together. Is there anything you can point to, I guess, quite practically since that time that you feel like have been real victories for you as the Peace Alliance, things that that have happened as a direct result of your work in this area? Because I think as, as people look at the general landscape of London, and we'll come on and talk about this later, but knife crime is such a huge issue, actually not just for London, but for the country right now. So some people would say, well, this sounds great, getting politicians in a room and talking and, and saying we want to change things, but, but has it actually worked? Can you point to things you think have changed because of your work? Without a doubt. Um, I remember having a letter um, that we got from the police, and it's... And it said that when we were organizing the London, we, we, we started something called the London Week of Peace. And we started running projects in schools. Um, now, this is from 20 years ago. And what the, the, the police did was they did the statistics of the waves of crime. And they noticed that whenever our initiatives were driven across in schools and communities, and when there was a sense of community cohesion, crime went down. So I have a letter to their effect that said, as a result of what you're doing, NIMS, the dynamic, Violent crime has gone down. Now, let me say this. In the last year, we've had a massive spike around knife crime. Let's not 
forget that this has not been the case for perpetuity. There have been moments where we've had, uh, it, it used to be gun crime, mm. it was very big. Um, so we created a toolkit called, a media toolkit to called Untouchable. And that was from the work I did in prisons. I went to young people and asked, why do you carry the knives and guns? And they said, listen, when we held the guns, and, guns or knives, we felt untouchable. So I began to explore the need for young people to feel untouchable. So we had a program as P PSHE, program that went into schools, talk, dealing with gun crime, addressing the issues, working with people who've come out of prison. I even had a guy who shot a police officer in the face, um, now we're a black guy who shot this white um, officer, and he'd spent time in prison, now he'd come out, and I had them going to schools teaching about forgiveness and reconciliation. Very strong imagery when you have that happening. And people who actually testify to the fact that they made life-changing decisions and no longer follow the pathway within the gang culture. I, some of those people I still work with up till today. We also run programs for young people who were 18 to 25 because youth statutory provision ends around there and made sure that those young people were given support from us. We gave them leadership skills, helped them back into employment. They were needs, not in education employment training. We secured a lot of that. Now, obviously, Unfortunately, when the funding cuts kicked in, it impacted on us. And when there's no funding, there's only so much more you can do. And then it is the reality. Once you don't invest in something continually, that investment begins to impact on young people. So do you, do you feel like the, the issues a few years ago around gun crime were, were kind of dealt with, but now knife crime has since risen up in its place? Is that what's, is that what's happened? Without a doubt. I wouldn't say it was an exchange for, but we, we, we also challenged the government about legislation on gun, guns and um, and because I used to sit on the Home Office Roundtable on guns and the Trident Independent Advisory Group, we did a lot of work, not just with government, but also with those perpetrated, those who perpetrated the crime. Um, now, what what has happened is young people feel that it's okay, at young as young as seven, to carry a knife into schools. What we there's a, there's a piece of work there that needs to be done, which does not only sit with government, but government needs to lead, lead the charge, but it sits with families. Um, th there, is an, there is a scripture that says, Jesus came over the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it. And he said, if only you knew the things that make for your peace, but they've been hidden from you. And then the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, seek the peace of the city, which I've caused you to be held, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you shall have peace. So we've created a five-point acronym around peace, and it's about parenting that is proper, education that is effective, achievements that are celebrated, communities that are mobilized, and enterprise that is sustainable. So it's an acronym. But in reality, what we do is we begin to look at what happens in the space of what pre parenting programs exist because we know there's a breakdown within the family structure, the absent fathers, the, the in some cases drug moms who are really caught up in a pathway that really needs support structures. So what we, we kind of look at what the support structures are for some of the most vulnerable within the society. I'm not saying, you know, within the community voluntary organization, there's only so much you can do. But within government, there's so much more you can do. And that's what I'm doing. How do you feel when people in the media or even politicians try and suggest that knife crime is in some way linked to race? So they will say, if you look at knife crime, it's coming from predominantly uh, black and minority ethnic communities. How do you feel when people try and make that link between race and crime? I forgive ignorance. And that's really what I do. I actually forgive ignorance because I tell them to go to Scotland. And you go to Scotland and you, we, we, uh, you know, you, you, we talk about the violent reduction units that started in Scotland. It was all Caucasian. What we're dealing with is, is economies of scales. What, there is an issue around poverty. There's an issue around um, the 
those communities that are most vulnerable with knife and violent crime are the areas where you have very high levels of deprivation, educational underachievement, um, a lack of employment opportunities. You have families living consistently off the state. So it's a failing of the system not to deny the responsibility of families. So there needs to be this holistic intervention. And so I think anybody that tries to restrict it to color is failing to see the big picture. And that's okay. I, I, ignorance is often bliss for some. But I, for us, we want to re-educate our society and re-educate our nation and make them understand that we can do better together to change the dynamics. Back in February 2018, uh, Premier Christianity magazine, we ran a cover story on knife crime. We entitled it The Battle for London. And we spoke to a lot of Christians who are on the front line, who, many of whom I know you will be familiar with and will have worked with. We spoke to a lot of Christians who are on the front line of ending knife violence. Um, since then, Premier has run a campaign called Peace on Our Streets, and we've been encouraging the Christian community to pray for their local community. And as you mentioned, with Scotland and other places, it's not just a, an issue that's affecting London. But what's your encouragement to Christians specifically on this issue? Perhaps Christian youth workers, um, but Christians in general who are concerned about their communities, who agree with what you're saying about the need for peace. What can Christians do practically, uh, Christians who care about this issue and this problem of knife violence? I think that, um, first of all, I, it's so important that we appreciate the investment of their effort, their time, their prayers into something that seems so versatile and not so easy to uh, um, deal with. But I think that we also need to work collaboratively together. Um, and we, we, we need to start seeing um, and approaching this in such a way that whilst you pray about it, like I said, ask God for wisdom. You, you, and in asking for that wisdom, you begin to find that the only partners that work on it don't just have to be Christians. Get, work beyond the Christian framework. Work with the schools. Um, I... I've been a governor of the College of Harringay Enfield, North East London, for about 15 years. And we host seminars around the issue. Um, I spent time with a lot of families that are very vulnerable in their space. And I think Christian workers, in youth workers, and those who are working with parents, it's not just the youth, you've got to work with the parents, and you've got to think about the, the bigger issues around economic empowerment. Um, I, I often speak about a conversation I had with George Foreman when I used to be a, um, a journalist. And I, I said, give me a message to young people in this nation. And he said, if they wake up in the morning without a dream, they should go back to sleep. I think Christian workers have to empower all these young people to dream. Mm. And for me, they represent the response to that dream. Um, within the Peace Alliance, we've got an acronym about DREAM. is developing real examples and mentors. So these Christian workers are the real examples and mentors that are, a lot of young people um, need to be able to look up to. We need to give somebody, give those young people something to dream about, something to hope about. I, I, I again play on acronyms, again, hope, about helping other people excel. You've got to give those kids hope. And as long as we're giving them hope, we're giving them dreams, we're taking them out of that comfort zone they're in, that says this is my hood this is my neighborhood and uh, and here i live and die but we say you know what i'm going to take you out of this space and i'm going to take you to an, an, an alternative world which is what i've had to do with many young people and i know a lot of the christian workers would have done that we pray for them we do what we can but we also need to take them out of that place where they for so long felt homed in and felt that is the neighborhood that they're never going to escape from we've got to give them an alternative framework Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue, Artie Kendall unpacks the problem with living for the praise of others. 
Missionaries Shirley and David Donovan share their harrowing story of being kidnapped in Nigeria and how God protected them during their 22-day ordeal. And we speak to Louis Giglio about his life-changing ministry to university students. Plus, Tim Hughes reveals how he spends his money. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Uh, on your website, it says that you've provided employment opportunities for those who've experienced the stigma of having custodial sentences and you've watched them make significant life changes. Um, I'd love to hear some of the stories of people who were in prison. We hear this a lot about people coming out of prison, find it very difficult to then make a start in life. Um, how have you been able to help them and share some of those stories? One of the biggest cases that everybody knew about um, was a guy called Winston Silcott. I don't know whether you've heard of Winston Silcott. Winston Silcott was said to have been the, um, he was accused at one point in time of killing PC Blakelock during the, the first Tottenham riots. And um, he was in prison. And then he was also in there again for, um, that case got squashed, but he was in there for another case around murder. So he's a lifer. And whilst in prison, I got approached as to whether I would employ him. Um, I said, yes, I would. By then, he was already seen to be the beast within the, the um, British media. Um, nobody liked him. And I, I was called by the police and told that if I employed him, I will be hated by all police officers. And I was already a chaplain within the police. And I said, I'm answerable to one person, and his name is God. And so in essence, I was basically saying to them, you know what, guys, I respect what you're saying, but I will never reject anybody because God doesn't reject us. So um, it was agreed that he will do a day release. Um, and so he, he was in prison for life. He was in, it was a lifer, a lifer. Yeah. So with lifers, you're there for perpetuity, except, you know, the parole board decides so to So it was a day you. release to come It was a day release, you. so he, yeah. he had a day release, came to work with us and went back to prison. And then eventually he was released from prison, even though he was lifer. So basically with lifers, it means that if anything ever happens, they can't catch you on anything, you're going back in. It's, there's no conversation around it. And he, he he worked with us and I for about six, seven years, and I made him a manager. And he began to manage other young people who came out of prison. So in essence, um, we started running a project called Inside Out, where you would go into schools and you tell the story, the real story, the back end story about what happens in prisons about the, 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 the trauma that people have gone through. I spoke to you about Stephen, who actually shot a police officer. And now, and during, in an in a untouchable video, you have Stephen and, um, uh, and the officer walking together and in Westminster Abbey and what they were doing in schools. We organized a massive service in the Abbey at that time with the Home Secretary and Commissioner of Police where we were able to say, hey, you know what, there is life after prison then there's you know I, I can give you another young lad who um when i went to felton prison he just was not ready to listen to me because the notion was they heard i was a preacher and like forget you and so i said guys give me two minutes and then let's take it from there two hours later they were saying look how can we come and work with you so and now he moved into the security business once he came out of prison we employed him i was just in holloway prison just last week and we had about 30 30 35 young men in the in the alpha you know the alpha for prisons i did the first session because i do quite a, no, a lot with alpha and joe davis from penville and at the end of the session i kind of called the men up and said if you want to join me let's just pray 
Let's just, and I had guys crying, all of them just, we huddled about 40 of us, 30, 40 of us, huddled each other just in a big circle. And they began to cry out to God. You know, and these are men that just would not necessarily normally do so. And then one by one, each one started coming to tell me their story and how they want to change their lives around. So I will work with those in prison and outside of prison. It's, it's something I'm doing, not because I'm running for mayor, but it's something I've done for the last 20 years plus, and I'll continue to do so. And do you think that anyone can be rehabilitated in that way? Because I've seen them. But I mean, anyone, because some people would say, look, that's great. Yeah, for some people, if you sort of see potential in them, yes, let's do the day releasing, let's employ them. But some people would say, well, there's a limit. And actually, for some people, I think they probably should just be in prison forever. What's what's your response? People gave up on Winston Silcock. I had um, the media come to sneak in. People gave up on him. People thought he had a chip on the shoulder. He's such a great guy. I've worked with heads of gangs who have been who've been stabbed and have stabbed. Um, and when I hug them, they kind of say, you know, I never had anybody who hugged me. I never had a father who was there for me. Who They've lacked emotional intelligence. There's something called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Some of these guys have had adverse childhood experiences. Things have happened in their lives that you and me can never imagine. One guy told me in prison just last week, he said, he said, he said I, I, I met my father who later in my life, and the first time I met him, he told me he hated me. And then he arranged for my cat's throat to be cut and sent it to me, the head of the cat in, a, in an envelope to me. I mean, he began to tell me his story, and this guy was traumatized. So I can tell you that they're different, you know, there's some, they're frigid when you hug them because they've never, they don't know what to do. They just don't know. And I'm just going, guys, it's okay. It's okay. Been there. I understand what your pain is. Do, does that mean that everybody can be rehabilitated? Well, Jesus demonstrated that on the cross. He had two of them. One refused rehabilitation. The other wanted rehabilitation. You just got to work with what you got. Yeah. And if people are willing, then you can work with them. Then you can work with them. Um, Sean Bailey sat in that chair a few weeks ago. So like you, he's running to be London mayor. Like you, he's a Christian. Like you, he has a background in youth work. Uh, The two of you have similar policies. You both want to make London safer, greener, more affordable. The only difference, of course, is that he's running as the Conservative candidate and therefore is more likely to be elected because he's got the backing of a recognised political party. Is that your view or mine? What's your response to people who might say that? Oh, now you've changed the dynamics because when you said he's more likely, then I would say that's a a view you have given, but not necessarily a view that I hold dear. Well, statistically, people would say if they've got the backing of a major political party, then they've got more resources, perhaps, and they're certainly more likely because when people enter the ballot box and they see Conservative or Labour or Lib Dem, that's more recognised than someone who's running as an independent. So there'd be plenty of people who say, actually, the recognised candidates in terms of those running for major political parties are at an advantage. But what's your response to the idea that Sean Bailey and you are very similar? You've both got background in youth work. um, You've both um, got very similar policies. um, But he does have the backing of the Conservatives. So what's your response to, to people who might argue that? Okay, so here's the exciting thing about it. I have had a chat with Sean Bailey in the past, and I know Sean. London is an, an interesting place. People have often said that London is more labor than it is conservative. Um, I believe that London is at that place where they're not necessarily looking for a labor conservative party to win, but they're looking for someone that can bring about a healing and a bridge 
between the divide that we've suffered over the last three years with Brexit and many other things. What I bring as an independent is the capacity to work across all parties. Um, Sean, to all, and what I, I made a promise to Sean, and this is my promise, that I never will deride him publicly. And I'll never say anything negative because that's not the politics I practice. It's, um, it's not the politics of my personality. So I will not totally want to say that about Sean or anybody else. What I'm clear, clear about is this, that as an independent candidate, what Londoners will need at a point like this is somebody that deals with the political apathy that exists in our city. Said it can won by 1.3 million votes. And with those 1.3 million votes in a city of 8.5 million people, in essence, he was voted in by the minority with a majority vote. So in essence, most of London did not vote. What we want to do as, an indep as independent candidates is awaken all those people that haven't had the opportunity to vote. Do you think you can win? I don't think. I know. You know you can win. I know I can win. If I say I know I will win, that could make me God. <laughs> but um, I, I know that. You think I, it's possible? You think it's possible for an independent candidate absolutely. to be London mayor? Absolutely. When was the last time that happened? Ken Livingstone. Ken was an independent and he won. Just in case you ask me, when was the last time a man killed a giant? David didn't need an example in order to do it in the first time. You don't need a precedent to step up mm. and do what you believe you're called to do. Um, I, I recognize the establishment of the Labour Party, Conservative Party, and all the others, but I realize that even though I've been approached to join different parties, I can make a decision to awaken all those votes that have not been exercised. Who approached you to join the party? Maybe we'll talk about that after the elections. You wouldn't say now who approached you to that, join. You say you parties. It wasn't just one party. More than one party approached you. What was the next question? Well, I, I think it's interesting because some Christians would say, as Christians, we need to we need to get involved in politics, which is, of course is exactly what you're doing. But I think some Christians would say, well, let's let's be involved and join the parties already there, which, as you suggested, might have been an option for you to, to join one of the um, parties. So what was it for you that thought, no, actually, I want to go independent? Um, is, is it just that you think people are a bit tired of the same old party politics and there's a desire for something fresh and new and not like the old establishment parties, as you called them? Yeah, okay, so in the last 11 years, I, I alluded to the fact that I've had the privilege of being a deputy lieutenant to the Lord Lieutenant for Her Majesty, and the Queen is apolitical. And with the Peace Alliance and the London Leadership Peace Awards, which we set up across all of London, um, where we'd have, in essence, over 500 activities with thousands of people involved, or we'll celebrate the best and the brightest of people who are making a difference in the city. I worked with government and opposition, and I worked across all you know, every single party. Were you ever accused of being partisan one way or the other? Or never. did you manage, you never been ne accused of that? No, no, I never was. Because if you looked at any of our magazines, it would have the endorsement of Tony Blair or Gordon Brown. I said in the introduction, uh, both uh, um, Theresa May and Tony Blair absolutely. have endorsed you before. Oh, okay, we very different people. Absolutely. So, yeah. so I've always had 
all parties could just come in and say, hey, listen, we affirm you, we, we celebrate what you're doing. And I've also hosted hustings for the mayoral elections. In essence, what that I would, I would have, Ken, Boris, anybody, you know, I've, had, I've done that for all the mayoral elections except for the Sadiq's one. And sometimes I've listened to their policies and they sound alike. Mm. Um, but That's often the case. Yeah, and I've said, hey guys, you know what I see? Your faces are different, but your policies seem the same. Mm. But you're just trying to make yourself a bit different. Mm. So I've got to that point where I've seen w what the politics of London represents. And I think there's a moment in time where we say, you know what, guys? It's not really about the partisan politics. Because what we try to do is what we try to tear down the other in order to make ourselves look better. And I think Christians can... I want people to look in the picture and see themselves in my picture, in the picture I'm trying to create, which is of a bridge builder. And which is saying, let's build the bridges together. Let's do this without trying to be so caught, caught in this partisan world of politics and saying, I'm Labour, I'm Lib Dem. I'm... There's a moment for London, and I believe that moment is now, where we can awaken the greatness within all of us and say to Londoners across all streams, let's believe God mm. for something that is uniquely different. It is incredible how rare it is, and it does happen, but it is incredible how rare it is to see, for example, a Labour politician praising a Conservative politician, or other way around, a Conservative politician praising it. It is incredibly, it does happen, but it is rare that we see that in the media and in our politics. And I think some people do just think, come on, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's almost like people are presupposed because of party to just reject whatever the other person says Absolutely. just because they're the wrong party. Absolutely. And that's really what I found quite disturbing. And I recognize there's a, there's a place for yin yang. But I think right now London has had enough of it. And what London needs is that opportunity to say, let's do something crazy. Let's actually put an independent into City Hall and let's have him bring together our differences because we are bridge builders, we're collaborators, we're reconcilers and that's what we want to bring to, to London. Is it is it difficult though for you as a, as a Christian because part of your job in campaigning is to say the current guy, Sadiq Khan, the Labour politician, it, part of your job is to say he's not doing a good enough job, vote for me instead. Is it difficult as a Christian to get that balance between part of your job is to criticise the current megs, you believe you can do better, whilst also not denigrating them or overstepping the line? Is is that a difficult balance to hold sometimes? I had a meeting with the deputy um, mayor for policing, um, Sophie Lennon, a private chair, and I just kind of said to her, you know, if you ever catch me on mainstream media or any saying things I ought not to say about Sadiq, call me up, pull me up on it. Because that's not the politics I believe in. I never have. Um, the Times interviewed me, and the Times were uh, on the 6th of November. They launched the interview, and it's, you know, I said, could this be the next mayor of London? And in that interview with the Times, I, I kind of made clear that I was not going to put Sadiq down. I, my view is this. He's done his four years. We still have issues that I think need to be dealt with. He's done the best he can. He should step aside, let somebody else take over. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not putting him down. He doesn't, this power of incumbency does not need to kind of be in the heartbeat of everybody. Oh, well, he's been our mayor, so therefore let's just vote for him. Or oh, I've always voted Labour, I've always voted Conservative. I think people need to wake up from that. I think what people need to do is kind of, because it is whoever we put there, it's the decision we as Londoners make. And what I'd like to see Londoners do is make a decision that is not restricting themselves to a partisan politics and feel that their vote will not count. Their vote will count. And I, 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 I will not put Sadiq down because that's not what 
I, I mean, I was raised as a Christian, and and I suppose my father being such a strong mentor to me, he never did that in the in the world I was raised in. So I really don't believe it's necessary in order to when you need to just put forward what your vision is and and how you want to put that across, how you want to help our city become better. Evangelical politicians don't always have an easy ride in the media. Think of, for example, Tim Farron, a politician who, um, has, safe to say, has had his ups and downs when it comes to the media. And, and the issue there, of course, was Tim Farron was repeatedly quizzed because he was an evangelical Christian, his views on homosexuality. Are you expecting that sort of questioning from the media? I open myself to any questions because every Londoner needs to feel safe with the fact that whoever's going to be their mayor has their best interests at heart. And I think that that's so important that we're able to open those conversations and deal with them robustly. So you're, you're open to any question being asked. You're not afraid that actually if that particular issue would have come up, a similar situation could have happened with Tim Farron? Because I think some Christians would say the Tim Farron incident suggests that any evangelical is going to have a bit of a hard time now in politics. Well, I, I, here's the reality. I, I think that first the word fear should not even exist within the context of our evangelical experience. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So I believe that the apprehension should not exist. But I think that we've got to be able to deal with issues as and when they come up. I, I, I find that people sometimes find it challenging to manage those dynamics. And I think I'll be able to manage them as and when they come. I used to, when I chaired the London Criminal Justice Board Advisory Group, I had members from the LGBTQ community as members of my team. And we all worked well together. Sean Bailey, uh, when he did this interview, said that he believes Christians in this country are persecuted. Do you agree with that? I think that that is a subjective statement. I think that some Christians, some Christian views may be challenged by the media. Um, but then at the same time, there's been the sleeping giant, and that's church. I used to um, be in charge of the um, sacred, which is the kind of religious teaching within schools. Mm -hmm. um, I used to be involved in that, the, the leading that within a bar and getting involved. I spoke at the national conference. And the Muslims were saying, they have a challenge with the Christians because the Christians are just too quiet about their faith and they need us to step up and be more affirmative about our faith. Um, I think both evangelical Christians and other, Christi other Christians, we need to be much stronger with what we believe and not feel that, oh, because we're persecuted. It's easy to say we're persecuted and so forgive me, I, I don't mean this intentionally as Sean, but use this as a political line. Um, the, the the fact is, there's religious liberty here, and we can we can share our faith in many ways, like many other nations cannot. And people are coming to faith. I see throngs of people still coming to faith. People still have the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, does that mean that some of our views will be challenged? Rightly so, just like they did with Jesus. You know, and and, and they will they did with Paul that the whole notion of our faith will have to be challenged. We knew that we were, that was what the scripture taught us, that our faith will be challenged. So the fact that a surplus world challenges our faith does not mean we're being persecuted per se. So if, I mean, just hypothetically, if the media were to go after you for some of your Christian beliefs, you wouldn't say that's persecution. You just say that's part of being living in a democracy and some people are going to disagree with me, but they're not persecuting me. Um, it's just something I'll handle and it's not a problem. I could accept it as persecution. I could accept it as an opportunity to share my faith.
So, oh, so it would be persecution. I could accept it as persecution or I could accept it as an opportunity to share my right. faith. So it, it's, perception is so key in everything. You're, you're, you know, um, the, the, the journey we often find ourselves on, and I have, I have had people challenge and question my faith, but what, what I've found is when I'm working with circular, uh, circular society and people of other faiths, I kind of say, let's find what's a common denominator. Instead of dealing with our differences, let's build upon not multi-faith worship, but multi-faith work. Let's find out where we can build our unity mm. uh, rather than me kind of... Um, remove myself from the equation and say, "All I, I'm, I'm just a persecuted person." Um, I, I know that uh, politically, we need to have more Christians step up into the mainframe of politics. Now, when we say we're being persecuted, then maybe we find where that persecution is coming from. Oh, if it's from the media, where are the Christians in the media? Why don't we find more Christians in politics, more Christians in media, who therefore, as the more we all step up in our various responsibilities, then we'll no longer feel that we're the victim, but we find that we're the victors. Because the Bible says something. It says in the last days, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse, um, verse 1, it says, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted above every other mountain. It says all nations will flow to it, and they will say, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord, for out of Zion will go forth the Lord. We need to have a very prophetic understanding of the purpose of the church. Rather than feel that we're the victims, the church needs to begin to see the prophetic destiny and begin to know that you're victors and you're called to... Get a hold of that scripture that says, thanks be to God, that always causes us to triumph. These scriptures can't just be mental scriptures. They need to be the things we own in our spirit and in our hearts. And we speak it, we act it, we walk it until we see it. You were talking before about how you think voters are fed up with looking at the parties and it all just looking the same and just sort of everyone's sort of saying the same stuff about their policies. So tell me about your policies. What What's different about your policies that other candidates are not highlighting? What makes you different? What makes you stand out from the other candidates, some of whom we've already mentioned? Cool. Um, I know that we kind of alluded to four key areas. Make London safe, make London affordable, make London electric, and make London prosperous. Those are the four key... And those things, others are standing on those platforms, aren't they? Well, maybe, maybe not. I've noticed some have, I mean, I'm not going to assume that we may take it from each other. Let me just put it that way. And it's important that we continue to look at each other's policies and see whether some of our policies align with the other. And if they do, we, nod, we give the nod of approval and say, great, we're thinking in the same way. Right, because I, so, I think environment and I think things like affordable housing um, and making London safer, I, I think all of the major candidates would agree with that, right? I mean, you're all seeking to make London safer and greener. That's not absolutely. unique to you, I don't think. No, no, no. I, would, I dare say I would hope not. But what I think that we want to do is the modus operandi. How are you going to make sure you do this? What, what, what is the template you have in order to achieve it? It's fine to speak about the rhetoric. It's fine to assume that this is the way... Um, this is the end game. But I think the means to the end and the uh, capacity you have to demonstrate that you've done it before and you can do it again is something that I think that's pivotal. Um, I, like no other mayoral candidate, I, I find it interesting when you're liking Sean and myself to be the same. Um, I'm not, if you looked at, forgive me for saying this quite sincerely, my pedigree and all the things I've done in the last 20-something years, you could never, ever say Sean and myself are the same. Um, he might have been a youth worker at this space and time. I've been much more than a youth worker. And, 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 I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to put Sean down, but I just do know the space of work that I've done in, the, in, in 20 years. 
but one of the things we've said that we want to do around the educational framework is I said we want to establish mayoral schools of hope because I found out working with a lot of those young people, that small percentage that need a lot of focus attention is not get them into the places where they're excluded from school. Most of those kids who get excluded from school need a support framework that is a bit different from normal kids. And it's that pathway. Having done some work in that space, I want to make sure I ha we have mayoral schools of excellence that bring in the very best and brightest of us who will act as mentors and support, support, um, uh, supporters, as it were, helping those young kids shift and transition from that pathway where they don't see a future into this, them beginning to believe in themselves. And whilst doing that, working with the parents that are at the very extreme levels of total, they've lost a sense of hope for them, their own selves and their own future and their communities. So there's that path that I feel, that whole parenting structure, the thing, the peace structure I talked about, I think because we've done work there and we will continue to do work in that space and we've sat around government tables and advised that these are pathways we think you need to uh, invest in. Yeah. I think our policies and our ways of delivering that will be entirely mm. different from just using the rhetoric of the word make London safe. What's been the best day of your career or ministry and what's been the worst day? Let's think about the worst for a minute. I want to go with the worst for a minute. The worst day was after McDuggan got shot by the police. And then the police called me at home, at the office, and asked me, based on the work I did with young people, whether I had any intelligence on what was going on on the streets. And I said to them, whilst I was in the town hall, because our office is in the Tottenham town hall, I said to them, you know what? This is not the time for you to be reactive. This is a time for us to be proactive. I said, I'd give you the town hall. Let's call a meeting in now and let's manage this internally. They didn't come back to me, so I sent them an email. Then they invited me for a meeting on a Saturday. I went into that meeting and they told me that ah, some people are planning a march out to Tottenham High Street. And I said, okay, we're gonna to need to try and get in touch with the family. Has anybody got in touch with the family? Because the family was feeling that nobody had gone to say Mark Dogman had been killed. I said, I need you to make sure you get that done. The police said, it's not our responsibility, it's the IPCC. I said, can you make sure the IPCC gets, in, gets to me that family? I watched and then I got called to come to the police station by a friend. Mark Dogman's family were standing outside with the children and women. And I watched for five hours as this thing began to degenerate into a very unsettling atmosphere. I had to get the women and children out. I saw a police vehicle driving into that space. I told the vehicle to turn back. By then, the vehicles had started burning. And I watched Lund um, Tottenham burn. Then I watched that city burn, and I watched that nation burn. And I wished that one police officer had the sense to have done what I told them to do. That was a moment in time I'll never forget. Mm. And the new Evening Standard did a two-page spread about that. So yeah, that was the worst season yeah. within all the years of working with police, and that was the worst. The the London riots. Have, have, before we come to the before we come to the best day, just just quickly on that, have you been in those sorts of positions before or since where you've been close to a family who you know obviously completely understandably feel feel massively wronged at the injustice of what has happened to them, and where there has been a 
and again, understandable tendency for them to want to take some kind of revenge or act in a way that would not be peaceful. Have you been in those situations before? And I'd love to know, kind of almost speaking as a pastor, how you counsel people who may or may not be Christians, but some injustice is done to them. And the the almost natural tendency is, I want to take revenge. How do you as a pastor counsel someone in the heat of that particular moment? Let's fast forward to the verdict where everybody listened. And that was in court with the Duggan family to that moment when everything that was being said seemed to say the police were going to be done. Right, yeah. And even the police said so themselves. Mm. And then all of a sudden the verdict comes out and it's contrary. Mark Duggan's mom fainted in my arms. Fainted literally in my arms. And then there was a staring that was not healthy at all. So I told them to come to the town hall, from the court straight to the town hall. And in that space, I had a very angry mob of members of the community family who were ready to do anything. Mm. I had the police on the other line saying, Nims, what's going to happen? How are we going to manage this? And I had to just be with a a few others, just that calming effect and allow that deep expression of anger, hurt, violations in their minds to be managed in that space. There was yet another one where a kid was being chased by the police and he got crushed by a bus and he died. And the police were deeply concerned as to the impact of this and we had to manage that in our premises. Uh, I can go on. There's some very things that never make it into public space. So it's, so it's allowing people to process their grief. Absolutely. Verbally. Absolutely. And take the anger out, but never in a way that becomes violent, I suppose. Absolutely. And it's very, it's, it's, it's a very difficult time because you've got to do things that, you, it's just absolutely the grace of God. And, and yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to the best day. What's been the best day? I think, I think there was a moment in time where I, because I'm, I'm always sometimes away from my family, not all the time, but quite a lot. And my kids were, I took them to Buckingham Palace and the Queen awarded me an MBE at that day. And it wasn't about me. I, I remember the Queen speaking with me and I said to her, whilst we had a little gnat, I was saying to her, you know, really, this is not about me. This award isn't for NIMS. It's for all those individuals, organizations, charities, and offices that we've all worked together to help work towards making our community safe. And it was also for my family. Hmm. So they felt, okay, you know what? This is just an affirmation that we're all working together to make our city a, 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 a better place yeah. to be. So, you know, just getting that affirmation, not so much for me, but for all of us. And later on, the, the media came to interview me and said, how come you were the longest person? You spent the longest time with the queen. What was all that about? <laughs> and, and, and it was really about just affirming each other and saying, you know, thank you. And I, I think that was just kind of cool. Um, Having that moment, you know, I'm not. I really want to ask you what the Queen said, but I'm very aware. I don't think I'm allowed, am I? I'd probably, no, yeah, no. I'd probably been was, locked up in the Tower of London or something. There if I, you have it. There you have it. I could just. It was a great conversation. It was I'm a great sure it was. Well, this has been a great conversation too, Nims. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. It's been great being with you, Sam. Thank you. 
Well, thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Nimza Bungay today on the Profile Podcast. As you can hear, I've subsequently lost my voice. And don't worry, I'm not looking for your sympathy, but I am asking you a favour. If you enjoyed that conversation, could you do us a massive favour and give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast? It would really help other people discover the show. It helps get the word out there once we get ratings and reviews. And many of you have already done that, so thank you so much if you have have given us a rating and a review but if you haven't already and i'm asking this week particularly because i am feeling rough please give us a, a five stars would be preferable but whatever you think is fair a rating and a review it helps others discover the show well it can't be fun to listen to my voice in this state so i'm going to sign off for now thanks so much for listening we'll see you next time